welcome to the second episode of the APOG podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel, and today we'll be learning all about the ins and outs of the menstrual cycle. We'll review the hormones that ebb and flow in preparation for and in response to conception, and we'll also discuss what happens when these mechanisms go awry. So hold on to your tampon strings as we dive into the miracle that is the menstrual cycle. For those of you not in the medical field or new to it, it's important to remember that the human body often works as a series of calls and responses, starts and stops, that help things tick along in the way they're supposed to. Now, we often call this mechanism a feedback cycle, where one action is triggered by either the action or inaction of another. When it comes to the menstrual cycle, there are four main players in this system, the hypothalamus, the anterior pituitary gland, the ovaries, and the uterus. Now, it's the job of the hypothalamus to pump out hormones, one of which is gonadotropin-releasing hormone, GnRH. Now, GnRH tells the anterior pituitary gland to release its own hormones, called luteinizing hormone, LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. Now, FSH and LH are responsible for the growth and development of follicles and the triggering of ovulation, respectively, but more on this later. The ovaries, which if you remember, are the storage center for the eggs or the oocytes, are responsible for making two hormones that are critical to the menstrual cycle, estrogen and progesterone. Now, estrogen is the hormone that's responsible for many different things, including stimulating endometrial growth, bone and muscle growth, which makes sense. Think about why women are at a higher risk for osteoporosis after menopause. It also helps with secondary sexual characteristics during puberty. That's breast tissue, changes in the vulva, pubic hair, things like that. It also prevents the contractions of the uterus that would otherwise expel the egg. Now, within the ovaries are structures called follicles, which you can think of as small, fluid-filled sacs that contain a single immature egg. Now that we have a general idea of the various players, let's get back to the bigger picture. When thinking about the menstrual cycle, it's helpful to think of it as just that, this cyclical pattern of hormonal changes that affects the way that the ovaries and the endometrium, or the lining of the uterus, function. Now, this cycle repeats itself ad nauseum until either conception or menopause occurs. Of course, things can definitely go awry, but we'll get to more on that later. Now, we usually think of the cycle as lasting 28 days, as this is the average length of a typical menstrual cycle, with day one being the start of menses. To better understand the pathophysiology, the menstrual cycle is divided into two main phases, the follicular phase and the luteal phase. Now, you can think of the follicular phase as the first phase, as this is the phase that starts on day one, meaning the start of menses, and lasts until ovulation, Now, remember ovulation is when there's this release of the egg from the follicle, and this occurs anywhere from day 14 to day 21. Now, eggs or oocytes are contained within the ovaries in structures called follicles, which you can think of as these sacs covered with special cells called theca and granulosa cells, which act as receptors for FSH and LH. Now, when FSH is secreted, it causes some of the follicles in the ovaries to start maturing, and it's these maturing follicles that secrete estrogen. Now, eventually, a dominant follicle is made, and this becomes the follicle that releases the egg during ovulation. By eliminating the weak follicles, this allows the body the best chance of creating a healthy embryo if fertilized. 
Now, back to our little follicle friends. The anterior pituitary is releasing luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, which in turn is causing the follicles to grow and release estrogen. Now, estrogen is a tricky hormone. At low concentrations, it actually inhibits FSH and LH, which makes sense. You don't want to waste all of your follicles in one month by having them all mature. So a handful of follicles mature and produce just enough estrogen to tell the anterior pituitary to quiet down a bit. Now, even though FSH and LH are declining, the follicles that were originally stimulated by FSH keep growing and growing and making more and more estrogen. As estrogen spikes, it actually has the reverse effect. At high levels, it triggers LH and FSH to surge, and it's this surge in LH that causes the dominant follicle to rupture, releasing the oocyte into the fallopian tube, where it will make its long journey down to the uterus. So that's what's happening in the ovaries during the follicular phase. But what's going on in the uterus during this time? Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, the whole cycle starts with menstruation. So for the first five days or so, the uterus is really just shedding its innermost layer, called the endometrium. Now, the rising estrogen levels, again from follicular maturation, triggers the endometrium to thicken. So when the egg makes its journey down to the uterus, it has this nice, plump, and comfy spot with lots of blood vessels to implant and start growing an embryo. Estrogen also thins the cervical mucus, making it easier for the sperm to travel through the endocervical canal and into the uterus. The second half of the menstrual cycle, or what happens after ovulation, is called the luteal phase. After the dominant follicle releases the egg, the empty follicle turns into the corpus luteum. Just like a corpse slowly degrades over time, so too does the corpus luteum. And as it does so, it releases three hormones, estrogen, inhibin, and progesterone. Now, inhibin, like its name would suggest, inhibits the production of FSH to prevent further follicles from maturing. Think about it. We already shot our shot with the egg that was just released. The body doesn't want to go wasting any more of its precious follicles. At the same time, progesterone is telling the hypothalamus to slow down on its production of GnRH and to ramp up the growth of the endometrium. It's also telling specialized uterine glands to produce more mucus. So if a little egg finds its way to the uterus, it'll be able to stick securely to the inner wall and implant. As time goes on, the corpus luteum eventually turns into the corpus albicans. And like a ghost, it's simply there. It doesn't produce any hormones, so the levels of progesterone and estrogen begin to fall. As this happens, all of the previous work that the body did starts to become undone. The cervical mucus thickens and the spiral arteries shrink, cutting off the blood supply to the endometrium. Without proper blood supply, the endometrial tissue starts to shed, indicating the start of menses, and hence, the cycle starts anew. But you're asking yourself, Morgan, what happens if the sperm was able to make its way up the fallopian tube and fertilize the egg? Well, in the event that the sperm is able to fertilize the egg, forming a zygote, the zygote travels down the fallopian tube and into the uterus, all the while dividing and growing, and eventually becomes a structure called a blastocyte. Now, a blastocyte is made up of two parts, an embryoblast, which becomes the embryo, and a trophoblast, which becomes the placenta. Now, once the blastocyte becomes embedded in the uterine wall, the trophoblast cells start secreting a hormone called beta-HCG, or beta-human chorionic gonadotropin. Beta-HCG is the hormone that we use in pregnancy testing because it's the only hormone which is produced when the fertilized egg has been implanted. 
What beta-HCG does is that it tells the corpus luteum to keep making progesterone. It's these elevated levels of progesterone which keep the walls of the uterus well supplied with blood and nutrients and allow the pregnancy to be maintained. If all goes well, 40 weeks later, give or take a few, there may be a baby. So now that we've discussed the pathophysiology of the menstrual cycle, let's take a, a look from like a bird's eye view. Let's summarize. So we know there's five key hormones involved in maintaining the menstrual cycle. There's GnRH, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which tells the anterior pituitary gland to make FSH and LH. FSH is follicle-stimulating hormone, which tells the follicles to start maturing. There's LH, or luteinizing hormone, which, remember, that surge causes ovulation. There's estrogen, which is responsible for the secondary sex characteristics, like breast tissue. It's also responsible for bone health, thinning of the cervical mucus, which, again, allows sperm kind of like a fighting chance. And it also increases the blood supply to the endometrial lining. And finally, there's progesterone, which preps the uterine lining for pregnancy by increasing its blood supply and maintains the uterine lining during pregnancy. Now, remember, the menstrual cycle mainly consists of two main parts, the follicular phase, which starts with menstruation and during which the follicles are maturing. This is followed by the luteinizing phase, which begins with ovulation and consists mainly of the uterus prepping for a possible pregnancy and either ends with fertilization and implantation or menstruation. Now that we have a basic understanding of how the menstrual cycle works, I thought we could dive into some of the common questions that I'm often asked in clinic surrounding the menstrual cycle. So first one up, when should I be getting my period and how long should it last? So a normal, and I put that in air quotes, menses, occurs anywhere from 21 to 35 days, and it should be happening around the same time every month. What's not considered normal is if your menses is occurring at different times of the month or the time between each menses changes so you're unable to predict when the next menstrual cycle will begin. This irregularity between menses is called metaraja. If your periods are farther apart, meaning greater than 35 days, this is called oligomenorrhea. Now, does the average Joe really need to know these terms? Not particularly. I'm including them here because they're often listed on end of rotation exams and other you know, professional exams for medical students. So more of a heads up FYI in case you're tested on it. Next up, we have how much am I supposed to be bleeding during my menstrual cycle? So typically the menstrual flow is heavier at the beginning of the cycle, the first three days or so, and then it slowly decreases before stopping. Now, there is a natural variance between individuals, but the bleeding should never be considered unmanageable, meaning that you shouldn't constantly be worried about bleeding through your clothes or your bed sheets, and it really shouldn't interfere with your daily activities. Now, a heavy menses is called menorrhagia, and it usually refers to having to use more than two pads in an hour. If you're having episodes of lightheadedness, dizziness, shortness of breath, or you pass out during your period, it could mean that you actually have developed an anemia or a low red blood cell count from the amount of blood loss during your period, and you should definitely be evaluated by a healthcare provider. Now, an absence of amenses, if lasting longer than three months, is called amenorrhea, and this should also be evaluated by a healthcare provider, as there are many causes, one of which, of course, is pregnancy. Another question I'm often asked is, is it normal to have pain before or during my period? And what's like a normal amount of pain and when should I be concerned? So 
some pelvic pain or cramping can occur three to four days before menses or even during menses as a result of those uterine walls contracting, working to expel the functional layer of the endometrium. But this pain should be well controlled with the use of NSAIDs or a heating pad, things like that. What's not considered normal is if the pain is so significant that it's affecting your ability to do everyday activities. This pain is called dysmenorrhea, and it may be a sign of underlying issues like endometriosis, uterine fibroids, or ovarian cysts. More on this in a separate episode. Well, that about wraps it up for me. Thank you so much for joining me on this overview of the menstrual cycle. I'm hoping to have a follow-up episode sometime in the future that dives into the nuts and bolts of abnormal uterine bleeding. Until then, you can tune in next week where we're going to discuss the who, the what, the why, and the how of Dr. Papaniklau. You can also find all the resources for this episode in the show notes listed on our website. You can find links to our episodes at APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things we're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. That's the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.